The Light Sail Countdown begins this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society that is celebrating the January 26th announcement of the Light Sail A mission. We'll talk with project manager Doug Stetson and embedded reporter Jason Davis about this test of innovative solar sailing technology. Bill Nye will add his thoughts in the company of a special guest. Later, we'll join Bruce Betts for our regular What's Up Sail Across the Night Sky, including the Space Trivia Contest. Getting us started is senior editor Emily Lakdawalla with an extended two-mission report, taking us to a comet and the red planet. Emily, two great reviews in the uh, blog this week. Uh, Let's start with the brand new one, and that is uh, your take on the reams of Rosetta data and pictures released just last week. Very nice stuff. It's the event we've all been waiting for. Finally, there are peer-reviewed publications in print and science magazine, eight research papers on the Rosetta results at Comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko, and they include, finally, the release of a huge pile of OSIRIS camera images. OSIRIS is the science camera on Rosetta. One of the images that they released is down to 15 centimeters per pixel, so Hmm. we're seeing exquisite detail on the surface of this comet. You have picture after picture here, so many of them with features that you could just stare at for, I don't know, an hour, and I imagine a lot of these scientists are doing exactly that. It's just a crazy landscape. I mean, the comet is weird to begin with because it has this two-lobe shape, and that does strange things to the gravity fields. You have some places that are low and flat, and they seem to be filled with dust. It's probably actually basically comet snow. It's stuff that's gotten vented. Particles were too big to escape, so they fell back down, and you have these comet snowfields. And then you have these incredibly steep cliffs, and the steep cliffs in many places are fractured. They have these parallel fractures, and that's extremely strange because it suggests that the interior of the comet is is strong. It's held together. It's coherent in order for you to be able to perform parallel fractures like this. Hmm. And yet we know that the whole comet has a porosity of like 70 to 80 percent. 70 to 80 percent of it is void space. I looked up a paper on snow physics and found that uh, fresh new fallen snow is 90% void space. You can have a, a kind of old snow that has that crust on the surface that mm-hmm. is more like the 70 to 80% that they're reporting. So it's it's conceivable, but it's still really hard for me to understand how this stuff can fracture so coherently. So it's both, it's wonderful to see the pictures. You can see structures in the comet you've never seen before. You feel like you're understanding something, but the more you poke at it, the less you understand. <laughs> Has anybody begun to guess at what could be causing these things that look for all the world or all the solar system like wind-driven dunes. Yeah, that's an interesting one because the, so there are the features, they really do look like sand dunes. And in the paper that describes these pictures, they talk about maybe vents, you know, the, the comet does outgas and there could be gas venting that's dense enough to, in the low gravity, to make sand dune features. At the same time, I attended the American Geophysical Union meeting in December when I saw another guy who, by the way, is the 28th author on the same paper who doubted that. <laughs> explanation. So, I don't know. I think the jury's still out. All right, before we leave this, and of course, people should take a look at it, it's uh, going to be a blog entry that Emily uh, had posted on Monday the 26th as uh, this show became available. But as the features of this comet are named, you heard somebody notice something very humorous. Well, the features on the comet are named for Egyptian deities, uh, as befits the Rosetta mission. And there is a little flat area on the neck called Happy. And there is another area uh, higher up on the head called uh, Baby. So now we have the Happy Baby region on Rosetta. (laughs) 
<laughs> who, could, who, who could ask for more? <laughs> I don't know. All right, let's jump over to a slightly older piece that you posted on the 22nd. It is one of your periodic update status reports on Curiosity, which uh, you point out is becoming more and more a Red Rover. It is. It's done another self-portrait. Self-portraits Curiosity typically takes when she starts drilling, so that tells you that they're getting going with some drilling activity. Um, this one was a little scary to write because it had been more than two months since my last update. And the funny thing is that Curiosity had not uh, moved from the present location in those two months. Well, actually, the rover had. She had just returned to the same location in those two months. She's at a site called Perump Hills, which is the first major outcrop of uh, Mount Sharp material. She has now completed two circuits of the outcrop, doing what a geologist does, walking the outcrop first, looking around. The second circuit, she put her uh, magnifying lens down on the outcrop and and took some uh, APXS elemental measurements. And now the third and final pass will be to do some drilling. But first, Curiosity has to do a flight software upgrade. And that mm. took all last week. Um, it seems like it's probably gone okay. Um, so they'll be ready to continue drilling this week. And I thought it took me a long time to do software upgrades. You know, these photos that you've included in this update, uh, some of them, as we've almost grown to expect, are oddly familiar, like images <laughs> I've seen in the Southwest. But you also saw features that are seem to be completely unique and, and baffling. Yeah, you know, Mars, it's really hard to, to comprehend the, the differences between Mars and Earth. And a major one that we're seeing here, in especially inside Gale Crater, is how long wind has had to sculpt these landscapes. So you have rocks that are made of very thin layers that never, ever get wet. And they just have wind sandblasting them over eons, hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of years. And they erode these thin plates of rock. It looks like they're levitating. And mm. I expect that if you walked over there and just touched it with your finger, the whole structure might collapse. They're probably incredibly delicate. But right now, um, they're just standing out there, these thin plates of rock just suspended off the edges of shelves and all kinds of other really cool features in the wind-eroded landscape. Well, they are beautiful, highly recommended. It is, as I said, a January 22nd posting by Emily, this update from Curiosity, still uh, exploring Mars. And uh, be sure to get out your red-blue 3D glasses so that you can fully enjoy an absolutely stunning image of Salisbury Peak in 3D. Emily, thank you so much for this extended report, and I'll talk to you again next week. Look forward to it, Matt. She's our senior editor, the planetary evangelist for the Planetary Society, and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Up next, we kick off our special light sail coverage with a backstage visit talking with the CEO of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye. It was another beautiful Sunday afternoon in Pasadena, California. I parked at the California Institute of Technology and went in search of the Planetary Society's CEO, Bill Nye. He was at Caltech to talk about his new book, Undeniable, in front of a standing-room-only crowd. As I walked across the campus, there were fewer than 24 hours remaining before a long-anticipated announcement would finally be made by Bill and the Society. I wanted to get it directly from the science guy. What I didn't expect was that we'd also be able to talk with a special guest, someone who would shortly be hosting Bill on stage. Bill, we are backstage at Beckman Auditorium. In a few moments, you'll be on stage with your special guest for the segment today, Michael Shermer of the Skeptic Society, because you'll be talking about an undeniably great book. It is undeniably great. No, it's, <laughs> it's my book, Undeniable. 
uh, Evolution, the Science of Creation. I'm here with Michael Shermer, longtime friend and uh, academic colleague who uh, contributed. He helped me write the book. Provider of a blurb on the back, I know. Yes, well, I, I, I wrote the blurb. That's if You call that a contribution. Well, we, we took <laughs> a lunch the, meeting. We had a right. lunch we, meeting. and uh, you, Your, you your people called my people, and yeah. we, you know, we did lunch, and we wrote the book in an afternoon. Yeah, it was great. No, there no is, this is a good book. No, really, seriously. This, this should be read by this kids, adults, grandparents. Everybody should read this book. That's well worth talking about, but it's a space show, and you have a big announcement that Michael may also be excited about. Yes, so uh, this week... Uh, we are launching. We are announcing the launch of LightSail. We have a we have a launch. The Planetary Society is going to launch a solar sail spacecraft. The last time we tried this was in 2005 on a Russian rocket. It is somewhere in the Arctic Ocean, the Barents Sea specifically. But this is on an Atlas V, a time-honored, oh, wow. venerable rocket. Yes, they don't fail. No, very seldom. And so we are going to get this thing on orbit, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have a fabulous deployment. We're going to see some wonderful pictures, and we will be advancing space science and exploration. We'll be talking with Doug Stetson, the project manager, in a moment, and with our own Jason Davis, our embedded reporter in the project. So we'll hear what they have to say as well. But, Michael, you deal with science, real science, as well. I wonder, is this an exciting thing for someone uh, coming from the skeptic side? Oh, yes. Well, I think Carl would be proud. This was, uh, you know, Sagan had talked about this decades ago, and this is one of those things that's finally nice to see come to fruition, assuming it all goes well and, and deploys and all that stuff. You know, it's space travel is a lot harder than most people think, as Elon Musk can probably tell you. Uh, but I think, you know, that's the wave of the future is, you know, we have to leave the planet, so this is a good start. To the stars on <laughs> photons. Astra. At Astra on photons. Yeah, it's an exciting <laughs> thing. And just before we go, Michael has a book out this week also, The Moral Arc, which I've read. I wrote a blurb for, yeah. and it's really it's a cool idea. Everybody, I think, should embrace it. You have a ways to catch up with him. He's way ahead of you just in book count. Oh, I know. Yeah, well. Yeah, but I'm way behind on TV count. <laughs> <laughs> the longest journey starts with but a single step. Uh, oh, wow, can I write that down? Can sure. I use that in my new, next book? Oh, my God. That's, that's no, we're going to the stars. The first week of May, light sail is going to fly. Thank you, gentlemen. Michael Shermer, head of the Skeptic Society, about to be on stage with the CEO of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye, the science guy. It was a great show that afternoon at Caltech, but an even bigger show is approaching. After the break, we'll talk with LightSail project manager Doug Stetson and the Planetary Society's embedded LightSail reporter, Jason Davis. This is Planetary Radio. Hi, Mary. Can I borrow a couple of eggs? Sure, Marge. I'll get them from the fridge. Oh, darn. Look at this mess. All my refrigerator magnets have clumped together again. Mary, you need magnetic monopole refrigerator magnets from the Roswell Wonder Company. They're guaranteed to never clump. Gee, thanks, Marge. I'll order my magnetic monopole refrigerator magnets today. The Roswell Wonder Company, putting alien technology to work for you. Not an actual company. Random Space Fact! Nothing new about that for you, Planetary Radio fans, right? Wrong! Random Space Fact is now a video series, too. And it's brilliant, isn't it, Matt? I hate to say it, folks, but it really is, and hilarious. See, Matt would never lie to you, would he? I really wouldn't. A new Random Space Fact video is released each Friday at youtube.com slash planetarysociety. You can subscribe to join our growing community, and you'll never miss a fact. Can I go back to my radio now? Welcome back to Planetary Radio. Hi, Matt Kaplan. We're devoting most of today's show to the upcoming launch of LightSail A. 
It won't be the first sail in space, but it will be the first to emerge from the tiny form of a CubeSat. We've talked about these before. The most basic CubeSat is, you guessed it, a cube. But it wouldn't hold many Borg at just 10 centimeters or about 4 inches on a side. LightSail will be a 3-unit CubeSat measuring 10 by 10 by 30 centimeters. Think of a loaf of bread. Yet its fully deployed sails will spread out to 32 square meters. It was on our first show of 2015 that Jason Davis hinted about the big announcement to come. Jason is a digital editor and producer for the Society. He reports on human spaceflight, but he's also our embedded correspondent for the LightSail project. He has been blogging about LightSail for months and is also supporting the new dedicated website you'll find at sail.planetary.org. That's where you can watch the video he has created. I rang up Jason via Skype a few days ago. Also joining us was Doug Stetson, the LightSail project manager. Jason and Doug, thank you very much for joining us on Planetary Radio uh, for this big week for the Planetary Society and for the LightSail mission. Doug, I'd like to start with you. Could you give us uh, an idea of what is going to happen with this first LightSail spacecraft, LightSail A? Uh, Sure, Matt. I'd be glad to, and uh, thanks for the chance to talk to you. Yeah, it's really good news. We're very excited. We're on our way to launch, on our way to the launch pad anyway, with LightSail A. The spacecraft has been buttoned up inside the P-Pod, which is the carrier for all of the CubeSats. Uh, it's now been integrated with uh, the carrier of the P-Pods, which is uh, being done in uh, at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. And then uh, shortly, it's going to be shipped over to uh, Florida for, for launch on an Atlas V. Uh, so LightSail A is our opportunity for a test flight of the LightSail spacecraft. And uh, this will be launched in... Uh, middle of May this coming year, just in a few months, it's our opportunity to validate that the design of the spacecraft works properly, that all of the functions go as expected, and that we can actually deploy this solar sail. And so uh, this is in in preparation for our uh, main launch, what we call LightSail B, which will be in the uh, uh, middle of uh, next year, 2016. So LightSail A is a test. This is only a test, uh, but it's a great opportunity for us to really verify that the design of the spacecraft is is proper, all of the subsystems are functioning normally, and that they will uh, allow the spacecraft to reach orbit, power up, communicate with Earth, and then deploy the sail. Uh, so all of that will be done autonomously, automatically, after ejection from uh, from the carrier. The mission will actually be fairly brief. Just a few weeks, um, since we'll be in somewhat of a low orbit, we won't have a long lifetime for LightSail A. After launch, we'll have about a um, couple, two weeks to check out the spacecraft, two or three weeks, and then we'll uh, be deploying the sail shortly after that. The sail itself is deployed in just a few minutes, and uh, we'll be getting some pictures back that verify that the sail has come out properly and is fully deployed. And then we'll be able to go through several days, maybe up to a week, of um, orbits around Earth, testing out the uh, light sail systems. It should be easily visible from the ground, so everybody will be able to look up and see light sail as it's uh, crossing the skies. After probably about a week, maybe 10 days, uh, the orbit will begin to decay and uh, will eventually re-enter the atmosphere. But this will be a really important test flight for us to get ready for the main launch uh, next year. 
Can't wait to see those uh, pictures coming back from Lights LA and and that new uh, shooting star going across the sky as well. Doug, explain to us uh, why there won't actually be any solar sailing for this mission anyway. Well, it's purely a matter of the orbit altitude. In order for a solar sail to work properly, it has to be high enough above Earth so that it is outside most of the atmospheric drag. And that means the altitude has to be above about 700 kilometers, uh, maybe a little bit higher than that, uh, to do true solar sailing. Now, this particular launch that we're going into is an elliptical orbit, uh, so it's, it's not circular, but it will not be high enough to be outside of the atmosphere, uh, the upper reaches of the atmosphere. That means that the atmospheric drag will actually overcome the solar radiation pressure, and we will not be able to actually measure solar sailing. However, we will have uh, the ability to deploy the sail and uh, see how it behaves, make sure that the booms function properly and that the sail itself is in good condition, all the deployment systems are working. Uh, So really, we're going to be able to validate all of the key functions uh, in advance of our actual solar sailing flight to a higher altitude. And as I said, that will be uh, middle of next year. This is an Air Force mission, of course. What can we say, if anything, about why the Air Force is putting this rocket up and they were kind enough to take us along for the ride? Well, it's actually a partnership with NASA. NASA has a program uh, which they refer to as ILANA. It stands for Educational Launch of Nanosatellites. The Planetary Society was was very fortunate to be selected uh, for a spot through the ILANA program uh, a few years ago when the light sail program was first getting started. Uh, So they awarded us a a launch slot, actually a free launch, uh, funded by NASA. And so it's a partnership between NASA and the other agencies to allow spacecraft that are built by educational institutions, uh, such as the Planetary Society, to have an opportunity to reach orbit and and, uh, conduct these these types of experiments. So we're really very fortunate uh, that, that we have this opportunity and we're taking advantage of it for our test flight. Jason, let me turn to you as the person who will be keeping uh, the rest of us most in touch with this mission as we lead up to launch and then, of course, uh, while it's up there in low Earth orbit. How will you be tracking this and, and how will the public be able to follow along? Well, sure. We are releasing a brand new website specifically for LightSail. It's designed to be seen on any screen size, any device. So whether you look at it on a computer or a mobile phone, um, you always um, get all the information uh, in a really easy to use format. And that's going to have all of our basic information about the spacecraft as uh, as well as media resources like uh, images and videos. But we're also currently developing an add-on to that called a dashboard that will have all the spacecraft's uh, current information available for the public to see in in near real time, we're hoping. Cal Poly, our partner, is one of the ground stations that will be receiving the information from LightSail. That's Cal Cal Poly San Luis Obispo here in California. Yes. Uh, They're working with us to uh, funnel some of that data over, and uh, we'll be displaying it on a web page. So anyone that is interested can see the uh, stats like the temperature of the spacecraft, the orientation, uh, and then we're also going to try to display some ground tracks to show people where it is. And when the sails come out, uh, that'll give people an idea of where to look. And as Doug mentioned, you know, it will be a short mission once the sails come out. But uh, we hope in those uh, couple of days while it's up there that people will be able to uh, use our website to see where it is and maybe be able to catch a glimpse of it as it goes overhead. 
Gentlemen, we're about out of time. Where will the two of you be uh, for launch of this uh, pretty exciting proof of concept? Well, I expect that we'll, uh, at least I'll be in um, California at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. That, that's our primary mission operations center for light sail. So uh, when the data begin to come down, uh, that's where we'll get the first look at it. And uh, for any commanding of the spacecraft that we're able to do, uh, that's where we'll be talking about exactly what to do with the spacecraft, putting together the commands and, and sending them up from, from Cal Poly. So that's where I'll be. And I'll probably um, go for the flashier option and, and uh, <laughs> uh, worm my way uh, down to Cape Canaveral uh, so I can watch a rocket go up in the air. But then uh, I'll definitely come out to Cal Poly afterwards, um, definitely for the sail deployment. I want to be out there to um, capture uh, this team's reaction in real time because they've just done a fantastic job getting this thing ready for flight. And uh, that moment when the sails come out, uh, that's going to be a big one and uh, definitely want to be among them uh, to watch it all happen. Jason, you need anybody to carry your bags down there to Florida? (laughs) (laughs) I think so, Matt. We could use an extra hand. Uh, Yeah, so come on down. (laughs) All right. I'm going to start lobbying the science guy right now to uh, put up the money. But if not, I I sure hope to uh, join you in San Luis Obispo as we uh, monitor the progress of Light Sail A. Gentlemen, thank you very much. This is certainly not the last time that we will uh, talk as we lead up to this launch expected in May of this year. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. That's Doug Stetson, the project manager for LightSail, the Planetary Society Solar Sail Project, and Jason Davis, a digital editor for the Society, who is the embedded reporter, our embedded reporter, with the project. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is Bruce Betts, the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, that group that we've actually just been talking about. Uh, Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back, Matt. So many other things to talk about. A big response, big rebound in the number of entries in the contest this week. But tell us about the night sky. Oh, and and may I say in just a quiet, reserved way, I saw the comet. I saw the comet. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I'd be a little scared what it would be if it weren't quiet and reserved. Well, good job. Yes, Comet Lovejoy uh, still up there. It's starting to dim, getting tougher to see, and you'll need binoculars or a, or a telescope or map to help you out. <laughs> see? Up there. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, a greenish Comet, Comet Lovejoy. But, again, even from a really dark side, probably, probably not naked eye right now, but, but maybe – a little fuzzball, if you look at it in binoculars or a telescope. Did you see a fuzzball, Matt? Absolutely. It was definitely a fuzzball. At first, I thought, that's some kind of nebula. I thought, no, it's too big to be a nebula. It must be the comet. That or Superman. I don't know. That's no nebula. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> really obscure. <laughs> so anyway, also in the evening, much easier to see than the comet, though I don't know whether it's more exciting or not, are uh, Venus and Jupiter. In the early evening, you can look to the west Uh, After sunset, check out super bright Venus. And pretty much the same time, or at least within an hour or so later, you can look over to the east and check out very bright Jupiter coming up. Then Mars is still up, low in the west as well, much dimmer than Venus and uh, higher up. We've got Saturn coming up in the middle of the night. 
lovely crowded sky. We move on to this week in space history. Uh, uh, we once again have come around to uh, the sad week in the American space program that we remember. Uh, every American astronaut death that occurred in a spacecraft accident occurred during this week, 1967, Apollo 1 fire, 1986, Challenger disaster, and 2003, Columbia disaster. So uh, we remember them as we, we pass through this Remembrance Week again this year. We will continue to do this every year. Certainly well worth remembering. On to random space fact. You know, that kind of frequency sweep could be very useful to me in producing the show. <laughs> Glad I could help. The flyby of asteroid 2004 BL-86 that's just occurred is the closest of any known space rock this large until 2027. It was about a half kilometer in diameter, passing three lunar distances, so still not any danger that it was ever going to come and hit. But a little reminder that, that there are big things out there flying around in, in, uh, in space. But as far as we know, none that big coming by Earth until 2027. On to the contest. So we asked you, to the nearest half hour, how long did it take the Huygens probe from Cassini-Huygens mission to descend through the Titan atmosphere to the surface of Titan? How'd we do, Matt? Everyone had the same answer. First, this one from George Mathis. Not our winner this week, but George in Edison, New Jersey. I mention it because he provides a free plug for your class. Thanks, Dr. <laughs> Thanks Dr. Betts. I'm watching and reading along with the videos on YouTube. You want to take this opportunity to remind folks? I do. We've uh, not only got the archived class on planetary.org slash bets class, but we also will be starting a new class in uh, 2015 spring semester that will be occurring very, very soon. First class is Wednesday, February 4th. And that will be, again, at California State University, Dominguez Hills, but will be broadcast live uh, over the Internet while it's happening. If you want to log in while it's happening at 3 o'clock Pacific time, or you can just look for the archives on planetary.org slash class. We'll get the information up there in the next few days of exactly what you need to do. In the meantime, you can always enjoy last year's class. So just to be clear, that's an introduction to planetary science and astronomy college class. Uh, students in California, high school students can take it for credit, but anyone can watch and enjoy. It is a great class. It gets better each time. You can tune in, just as you heard. Here is the person that Random.org selected as our winner this week, Joe Plasman of Tucson, Arizona, who said, along with everybody else, from the top of Titan's atmosphere to the surface, it took Huygens a little less than two and a half hours. Excellent. Long duration, by the way, a combination when compared to Earth of lower gravity, more atmosphere, and a higher atmosphere due to the lower gravity. Joe, you've won, and that means you're going to get the year in space desk and wall calendars. So congratulations. Still early in the year. You'll get a lot of fun out of those, I am sure, and amaze your friends at uh, Space Geek cocktail parties. We also heard from Ray Duvall. He was one of many people who found things to compare the two and a half hours to, but I think Ray in uh, Galena, Ohio, had the best. Two and a half hours are about the same amount of time it takes my 12-year-old daughter to get ready to leave the house. <laughs> Similar challenges, I guess. I'm with you, Ray. I had two. I still do have two. <laughs> okay, how about next time? Speaking of big asteroids, Ceres, Pallas, and Vesta are the largest known asteroids. 
What is the fourth largest? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Get us your entry. You have until Tuesday, February 3rd at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer this time. And we'll do this one more time. Another set of year and, uh, excuse me, another set of desk and wall calendars, year and space uh, calendars, and we'll throw in a Planetary Radio t-shirt. What a prize package. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about holographic doctors. Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Betts. <laughs> oh, yeah, the good doctor. I've heard that uh, he's going to be appearing in a random space fact with you. That should be great fun. Friend of the Planetary Society, uh, when he materializes anyway. Uh, that's Bruce Betts, though, who uh, has been talking with us about what's up in the sky. He'll be back next week for the next edition of What's Up. Please state the nature of your planetary emergency. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by the solar sailing members of the Society. The LightSail website is sail.planetary.org. Our theme was created by Josh Doyle. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Clear skies.